Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm Joseph. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Pace, and my pronouns are they, them. In this episode, we'll discuss the third Sunday of Easter, which this year falls on April 18th. One content notification for this episode is that we do talk about anti-Semitism in particular when we're discussing the first reading from Acts. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Our special guests for today's episode are the co-hosts of Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast about theology and horror movies. Hosts Pace Warfield May and Joe Romolo deep dive into a horror film and what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other every Thursday. So, Pace and Joe. Y'all are our resident horror nerd experts, and inspired by our Nerds at Church podcast, you recently started a new podcast called Horror Nerds at Church. Yay! Yes. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. This all kind of started because Emily and I are in a co-working group together during pandemic times where a few of us just kind of do some work together to kind of keep each other company over Zoom. And one time Emily was brainstorming some ideas for their Nerds at Church podcast. And I started suggesting all these horror movies that could work. (laughs) And Emily's like, that's a little outside the scope of our podcast. And I said, like, in an offhanded remark, oh, you should have a spinoff podcast called Horror Nerds at Church. (laughs) And lo and behold, in a funny way that the spirit works, as we talk about in churchy circles, I was not expecting that that would become a podcast project that I would kick off with (laughs) my friend Joe, but here we are. So yeah, we are a horror podcast. Basically, we're a little bit different than Nerds at Church. We uh, take a horror movie every week and examine the horror movie, kind of give our own reviews of it, that kind of thing as we go through the plot points of the movie and then end our podcast with a deep dive usually 25 30 minutes into kind of the theological or religious imagery of the film Mm. or basically like our introduction says what the film can teach us about god or each other or theology or the bible or any of those things so recently our halloween episode just released for the Uh, film Halloween and one of the things we talk about is whether or not the final girl in that movie Laurie Strode could be an example of uh, the Virgin Mary and what she can teach us about that and those kind of things so it's really fun cool I'm sorry that that Virgin Mary thing was my fault (laughs) yes Joe's a resident Catholic but we love our Catholics yes I am indeed yes yeah so I think I introduced myself as Joseph but everyone can call me Joe Uh, That's just what I prefer. Although I noticed no one ever calls Michael Myers Mike or Mikey. I guess nobody's really thinking about that when they're getting stabbed to death. (laughs) When Pace came up with the idea for this podcast, I thought it was like a really unique idea. And Mm -hmm. it sounded like a lot of fun. Generally, just hanging out with Pace is is fun in general. And it it was also a really good opportunity to bond with Pace's circle. Uh, because I had only recently started joining the co-working group and getting to know you all. So I thought, sure. My only concern, I guess, was that I actually hadn't watched 
a lot of horror movies in a long mm-hmm. time. It's something that I grew up really liking, uh, but it, but I, I didn't feel confident that I'd watched enough of it to contribute to a podcast. Uh, but, you know, the more we, we got into it, the more I realized, the more I remembered how much I loved podcasts. And, and then the more I started to see that, yeah, there are some theological overtones here, mm. like the Laurie Strode Mariology thing, which, quite frankly, if none of y'all had entered my life, <laughs> I might not have ever thought of that. Yeah. And I think it's also like telling that so many horror movies, if you just think about things like, for instance, the Exorcist series or any sort of movie, horror movie, there's not really a genre that really kind of goes in muddies its waters or goes into religious lore quite like horror it's really one of those genres that oftentimes will take some of the creepier aspects of a christian tradition or really any religious tradition and kind of use that to tell its story and call on that religious um, symbolism and stuff so yeah i had never thought about horror movies and like the horror genres as very religious but then when you were bringing it up and when you were talking about it I was like oh no that is like there's some creepy stuff in the bible yeah. um and in christianity especially well and yes, yes so much of what the media produces about religion is just so wildly inaccurate like mm-hmm. they will bother doing research for medicine and science all day long but no one will ever bother to ask a priest or a pastor what color should the church be decorated in at this time of year <laughs> No, yeah, of course sure, not. Yeah. Um, so, out of curiosity, do you guys have an opinion on? Uh, do you think the horror genre is like at all better than most mm. other media at that, or at least uh, maybe with different things? Uh, that's a great question. I think it really depends on the filmmaker and what they're trying to do. I think some films, like The Exorcist, for example, really strive to be as accurate as possible in its. Um, mm-hmm. depiction of the priests doing exorcisms and using the ritual Romanum and all those things and the vestments they wear. But most horror movies with, I think, most pop culture, like you said, really, it's more about just kind of connecting the audience to what they think the audience knows about religion as opposed to actually like go- diving deep into what, what it is. Yeah, so exactly. oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes Joe and I will do a little bit of fact checking as we go along. Like that's not really how that works or something (laughs) like that. Yeah. I think to answer your question for me, I would have to actually look at television and uh, my favorite Catholic of all time is agent Dana Scully from the (laughs) X-Files as a, as a cradle lifelong Catholic. I felt so seen by Mm. her and just how, much of a struggle she often had between uh, her faith and uh, her profession of being a, a scientist and a doctor, which actually they depicted really well in the last X-Files movie called um, The X-Files I Want to Believe. She had to perform surgery on this little girl and she knew it was medically necessary and she knew, she knew all the scientific facts that necessitated this surgery and yet it was really going against her beliefs Mm. and so and that's something I struggle with too all the time I I don't struggle with any of the paranormal things that she had to deal with I'm really jealous about that (laughs) yeah 
So we invited you on to our podcast for our deep dive because the Easter season more broadly and this Sunday more specifically, we are asking ourselves if Jesus isn't a zombie, a ghost, or a vampire. I'm especially interested in how we might know the difference between the resurrected Christ and a zombie or in today's gospel, Jesus is literally accused of being a ghost. So <laughs> do you have any insights for us? So I think, I think, and if you don't mind me going first pace, I think it's interesting that the notion of ghostly phenomenon like dates back to the gospels. For a, lot, for a long time when I was growing up, I always believed in, in these kinds of things, but I don't know if I was just really, I don't know, a precarious, not precarious, but like weirdly thinking about things a kid doesn't think about. What is the word for that? It's not coming to me. Imaginative would be great with a capital or I. Or precocious. And mm, precocious. precocious is what I was okay. thinking about. Thank you, Kay. And so for some reason, I suspected that ghosts were something that quite frankly white people came up with <laughs> i don't know why even as a little kid just to scare people who weren't white i am not sure how i knew about this or was aware of it maybe it's osmosis i mean that's maybe white supremacy just leaked into my mm. brain like that because being a filipino we didn't think of otherworldly spirits as ghostly phenomenon or anything to be frightened of they're we thought of them more as companion. But the more I read the Gospels growing up, uh, the more I understood the, um, what the events that happened, you know, after after the Easter event, you know, I started to see, wow, ghosts have been around for a while. And if I, if I had to take a stab at this question about what Jesus is, uh, I do have some reasons for arguing that he's a zombie. Mm. But I, I'd like—I'd love to know what pace paces take us on this. Wait, tell yeah. us why do you think Jesus was a zombie? I want to know these. <laughs> so I was reading the um, the scripture from First John, mm -hmm. and I was thinking about the concept of love, and I think I think Jesus is a zombie, but what differentiates him from um, I guess the conventional zombie <laughs> in terms of <laughs> exactly, exactly. I want to be careful here because there are zombie figures in other religious traditions, but I'm, I'm specifically thinking of our American movie um, mm -hmm. zombies, uh, like Kay said, brains. Yes. And I think, I think what differentiates Jesus from them is love because Jesus passed on, for us and he comes back not not to terrorize us or or eat our brains but as this reminder that you know even though he died on the cross he is life everlasting and so that zombie figure is always going to be there for us uh, because Jesus loves us mm -hmm. whereas the movie zombies they're there usually and this is just my interpretation you can jump in anytime usually they're there to remind us of how awful we are as human beings mm. movie zombies are there as like this consequence of something terrible that we did a common movie explanation for why zombies suddenly rose up from the grave is that there was a nuclear waste accident of some kind 
or the the popular TV show, The Walking Dead, which has been going on forever and a day, and <laughs> it, its time is really is up. <laughs> another episode for another day. But the even with that show, their explanation for the zombie phenomenon is a virus. Mm. And if you really think about that in terms of theologically and you know what it, what exactly is the nature of a virus, for me, that virus attacking humanity and making our dead rise up again is like the Earth's response to overpopulation of humans. Mm. And not just too many humans, but all the terrible things all these too many humans have done to the planet. Yeah. I First of all, I want to, I want to take a little bit of time to point out the similarities, and then I think I can get into some of the differences. For me, as Joe pointed out, some of the similarities, I think, are that when we think of Eucharistic theology and we are eating Christ's flesh and blood, and then we talk about zombies having this desire to eat human flesh and how the virus, the zombie virus, is oftentimes tra- transmitted through blood, uh, which is what we think as kind of connecting us to the body of Christ, to to grace. So, so there's definitely some similarities there. And I also think one of the things that Jesus's resurrection we talk about frequently is how it is kind of this foretaste of a kingdom to come, how it is this inbreaking. Uh, I hate that word inbreaking, but <laughs> it's frequently used the inbreaking of this future kingdom and so we talk about that and then we look at zombie movies and they are often set in these apocalyptic times and so mm-hmm. that the idea of the resurrected christ being a sign of the apocalypse and zombies being a sign of the apocalypse i think there's a lot of similarity there and i i don't think that's by accident i do think that as we're kind of talking about earlier in the introductory part, uh, Western culture is really shaped by this pop understanding of Christianity and including end time sort of phenomena around revelation, all that stuff. And so I think that that is kind of played with in the zombie genre. Mm. And also the fact that in the Luke gospel, Jesus is flesh and blood. He he carries the wounds that he had that were inflicted on him in his death which is something that we often see especially the walking dead tv series does a really good job of kind of showing that zombies you can see how the zombie often died in real life before Mm -hmm. they became a zombie and that because the makeup artists take great care to to show like whether it's a gunshot wound or something the zombie will still have that in there uh, appearance but then what joe and that, yeah and then what joe was saying about love i think is one thing uh but the other thing too is that i wonder what the disciples were thinking in Luke right? because yeah because it's like <laughs> they, they he, he's accused of being a ghost but there also doesn't seem to be much of a sense of them being scared of jesus at oh. the same time and jesus's first offering the word he says to them is a proclamation of peace which is very opposite of what we see zombies <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so i mean so the, i would say that's the big difference is that jesus isn't here to scare us in his resurrected form it, it is off-putting i think that that's clear in the gospel but i don't think it is scary per se and that jesus is coming to offer peace as opposed to coming to try to eat the disciples brains i mean jesus is hungry he asks for food but he's not asking to eat the disciples so so that's definitely a difference yeah jesus is hungry for our love as well um and you made a great yeah (laughs) you made a great point pace uh, about how uh the disciples were not afraid 
of this ghost. And remember, these folks were people of color, right? Mm -hmm. And so it reminds me of coming from the Philippines where we're not afraid of ghosts. We just, as I said earlier, we treat them as companions. Mm -hmm. Sure. So lately I've been taking part in a lot of conversations about the future of the church, but I suppose, uh, given our guests today, maybe a more appropriate topic would be the future of the horror genre. <laughs> so, Pace and Joe, if we take a bodily resurrection after the Last Judgment, uh, as expected, uh, will there then finally be truly no possibility of the undead to exist? And if so, what will this do to the horror genre in New Jerusalem? Hmm. <laughs> oh. I like that question. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I pace. I'm, I don't know about you, but I, I never really thought about you know how we'll watch movies in in the new heaven and the new earth. Right. I like to think question. that the iPads at that point will no longer have the planned obsolescence, but at the very least, right? Yeah. Amen. And we won't need Word. to be subscribed. Capitalism does not exist in New Jerusalem, so we won't have to be subscribed <laughs> to 50 million different streaming channels right. to get everything. Uh -huh. yep. uh, there's one podcast, this is kind of related, but kind of not, but one podcast I listened to, which is kind of in the horror genre, is with Gourley and Rust, and they, Matt Gourley is one of the hosts, and he talks about his idea for heaven is, um, he's a horror fan and film buff in general, and he talks about this vision for heaven where basically he will finally get to see all the movies that were envisioned but never really got made because of funding or budgetary reasons or for instance oftentimes there'll be a casting announce like they're considering so and so for a movie but then they go with somebody else and he's like well maybe in heaven i'll get to see what the movie would have been like with this other person and i think that's Ooh. a really kind of fun uh fun movie thing I, I I don't know. I think also with if you've ever read the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, the main character in that book talks about how in New Jerusalem, basically our lives here will be the epics that are told on the streets. And so I kind of think, I mean, our, there is plenty of horror in the world. And so I think we, I think in New Jerusalem, part of redeeming that horror will be treating it honestly and head on and not covering up, not shying away from it. And so, so how we redeem ourselves from the evil, like systemic sins, like racism and stuff is, I think, in some, some part in New Jerusalem, there will need to be a reckoning of that. And I think that'll be kind of horrific with hope as the end goal and redemption and salvation, of course, as the end goal of it. But the process, I think, will involve some horror for sure. Sure. I mean, there is a definite presence in the horror genre of movies that still have a happy or at least hopeful ending. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I believe in happy endings. <laughs> I'm a TBD kind of happy endings person right now. To be determined. Well, we'll see how uh, it goes. Uh, yes. Happy for now yeah, or sure. happily ever after. You know, yeah, whatever works. <laughs> what about Jesus as a vampire? It connects with the blood <laughs> oh. stuff, but like... Oh, Lord. <laughs> or like after the last judgment and the final bodily resurrection... What happens to vampires? Like, are they no longer vampires? Do do they get to stay as vampires if they really enjoyed that? Do they? Well, I mean, I think, can you really be soulless? Yeah, there's that whole thing about vampires being like these damned souls or something like that. So there, there's so many millions different understandings of the vampire lore. So, mm -hmm. but of course, there's sure. that one kind of trope of them being damned and soulless, which 
would, I guess, imply that they're not redeemed and that they get to spend eternity in hell, which doesn't seem very fun. But on the other hand, I, there, there's also this kind of like erotic notion to vampires. I mean, we see that not just in Twilight, but it's been there long before that. Even right. like yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula has a lot of erotic tones uh, and undertones it, to it, and it's very yeah. queer coded, right? Like vampire stories, the yes. vampires are always the the queer characters, which yeah, fits and part of Jesus. that. And I don't know if this is too explicit for the podcast or not, but I mean, part of that I think comes with the playing on those tropes of male fear of being penetrated and so you have a vampire penetrating the a male victim whether it's a female or a male vampire or non-binary vampire biting the male victim is penetrating them in a way that kind of plays on those male fears and so so but when we think of like the resurrection i think one of the mystical approaches to thinking about the resurrection the last day is theosis or union with god Mm. and so vampire i really think that there's this erotic union happening in between the vampire and their intended prey during the biting and so i think that kind of is a fun queer as you said emily queer coded kind of metaphor Mm. especially if we kind of bring a Eucharistic element to it with the exchange of blood being a sort of wine Eucharistic image. I, I, I see that maybe vampires could be a model for, of course, consensual vampires being a model <laughs> for uh, some sort of eschatological uh, union with the divine in some way. I certainly know a handful of people whose idea of heaven will involve a lot of LARPing to vampire the masquerade. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. Live action role play. Uh, so you know, <laughs> I love LARPing. <clears throat> you know, as a Roman Catholic, it, it has never escaped me, the vampirism aspect of our tradition. <laughs> Even as a kid, this notion of partaking in Jesus's blood. <laughs> I, as, and, you know, I've always considered myself a believer and it was very easy for me to accept uh, Jesus into my life and to accept this, um, you know, the God-like figure. The rituals though were, yeah, they really struck me as baffling, you know, and I, I definitely thought about vampires a lot. And this discussion about vampires having that erotic aspect and and also as Emily said the queer coding it's so interesting because in my lived experience Roman Catholicism and being gay all intersected and they were so tense against Mm -hmm. each other Uh, one of the many reasons why I was closeted for so many years was because uh, besides the usual reasons um, of family alienation and stuff like that I was really concerned about how my sexual identity would square with my faith tradition. And I didn't have an oppositionary stance to Catholicism necessarily just because I wasn't seeing myself. Uh, and even, even in the times when being gay was, quite frankly, preached against, I, I still thought, well, yeah, but I'm Catholic, so <laughs> there has to be a place for me, mm-hmm. right? I, I guess you could say I'm naive or I'm just persistent or I don't know, or, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe God has some weird plan for me. Who knows? But, you know, I made it, I made it work. And this concept that vampires may still exist in, in the new Jerusalem, it weirdly makes sense to me. I think a lot of it has to do with pop culture, which is probably why I went into business with, with Pace on this <laughs> podcast. 
so if I were to answer the question about what happens to vampires at that point, right? I would just look to the universe of the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> I am a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. And so in that in that universe, they actually set up the narrative so that vampires at some point if if they choose to because vampires still have free will in that universe, they can reclaim their souls mm -hmm. that they lost in exchange for gaining eternal life. Uh, but they have to go through a lot of painful, agonizing physical and mental trials for that. And this notion that your soul is still available to you, your, your humanity is still available for you, despite what you did to get this, you know, other thing that might not be considered so godly. I love that. That speaks to me as a Catholic. That speaks to me as a Christian. And so in the New Jerusalem, I'd like to think that the vampires are there and they're eagerly going after the souls that they traded in. Now, as I said, they have free will. So there's a little bit more, I guess, theological complexity about the vampires who choose not to reclaim <laughs> reclaim that and just want to stay in their current form but i think that this notion of of the new jerusalem and and the god that we believe in as believing christians is so expansive that there is there must be some accommodation for those vampires who just want to stay vampires yeah maybe in the new jerusalem we are all sparkle like the vampires in twilight do <laughs> yes. I was hoping yes, that would come up. Yes. I want to glitter as the like. That'd be great. I want glitter in the new Jerusalem. Right. That'd be so cool. Environmentally friendly, I, but I do glitter. too. I do too, Emily. But you know, as a be me being the old queen that I am, <laughs> when I think of glitter, I think of the Mariah Carey masterpiece cinema film <laughs> Glitter. No. You know, it, it was robbed at the Oscars. Robbed at the Oscars. <laughs> it's such a bad movie. Joe and I have talked about this before. Such a oh, bad movie. Brilliant. Brilliant. See, my uh, issue with glitter uh, is that it's basically impossible to be sneaky when you glitter like that. So. It's true. I did. That's true. Sneakiness is One time true. I did, I was preaching at a local congregation and the gospel was the mustard seed. And there was mm. another one too. But so I did for the children's sermon and for the sermon sermon, I talked about the reign of God is like glitter. And we like played with glitter in the children's sermon <laughs> and like thankful was this a sanctuary with carpet in it yes red carpet <gasps> uh, yes. and so people like weeks and months later would like catch a glimpse of glitter and yeah it went over like surprisingly well considering <laughs> i like glittered their carpet it was yeah, really good we're, re we're recording this on trans day of visibility mm -hmm. and just the visibility of glitter. I just think that's a yeah. very apt metaphor for yeah. what we're talking about right now. Yes, for sure. <laughs> I agree. I love I love the sparkles. It's funny. It, it got me. Oh, it took me a while to get into Twilight, the series, because as you know, to drive home again, the point of me being an old queen, <laughs> my thought process was. Yeah, you know what? Buffy the Vampire Slayer already did it, <laughs> and it was better. That's not a <laughs> <But> lie. Then... <laughs> like, I haven't seen all of Buffy, but, you know... but yeah, agreed. <laughs> exactly right. But, you know, eventually got around to watching those Twilight movies, and I was like, all right, all right, cool. 
<laughs> Do you think you'll ever branch out from the, like, explicitly horror genre to, like, movies like Twilight, where it's not a horror movie, oh, but sure. it has, like, decidedly horror... Oh. I yeah. will give you a teaser for what we are ending our first season on. We already oh planned out all the movies. We talk about this. We talk about it so much. Yeah. yeah. So I, the very last movie we're going to do, which will probably be airing in July at some point, if we look at our schedule, is uh, for the first season, is we're going to do The Mummy, the 1999 film, which is yes! really more of a action <laughs> comedy than horror, but there's still I some horror elements to it. So that's definitely going to be... It. Uh, we And we've talked about also in the future doing some stuff like the 90s movie Casper or mm. Hocus Pocus by Disney. So some fun stuff there, too. Matilda! To... Yes! Oh my gosh! Ooh, that'd be cool. I am so excited. I horror yeah. movies oh like actually gosh. freak me out sometimes, and so I don't yeah. watch them as much. So it's harder to connect. But like, mm, yeah. Yeah, we, for sure. We want to with our podcast kind of touch a little bit of all the bases. So we definitely do some of the hardcore horror. This first season, we're going through the entire Halloween franchise is mm. kind of the bulk of our first season, which is a slasher mm. movie and can get kind of gory and intense. But mm. we also try to have some more like cerebral horror, some more like family friendly or action horror. And one of the first, the first movie we did was flowers in the attic, which is more of like a Gothic <laughs> drama than yeah. you could even call it a horror. Mm-hmm. So um, we tried to, we tried to, uh, do a little bit of everything so even if you aren't a huge horror fan hopefully you'll find a few episodes that you'll be able to watch the movie along with us and listen so nice i could see a practical yeah. magic episode too oh yeah yeah <laughs> agreed i'm i'm a big fan of uh ha- of horror being an expansive category mm. so i've made some suggestions to pace that they you know they're not necessarily on board with <laughs> Like, for example, when we were thinking of when we were planning to do The Mummy 1999, I really wanted to look at the Tom Cruise remake of The Mummy as a horror film for all of the wrong reasons. (laughs) It's a very horrific movie, but not necessarily scary. Exactly. And then and then when Pace was asking me for book recommendations about, um, you know, of of horror novels that I might have liked, you know, I, I recommended Fear. The White House under Donald Trump by Bob Woodward. <laughs> so there was some discussion to that about, you know, you know how 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 explicitly horror do we want to be? I yeah. love that. Well, I was thinking like the movie that keeps popping into my head is the movie Saved, which is like I love that movie. not a horror movie. I love that movie. We saw it yeah. when I was in youth group, but like the horrors of what like terrible Christian theology well, does. Mm-hmm. Something we have talked about doing, which is kind of in that vein, is the documentary Jesus Camp. Oh, have you seen that? Yeah, oh, that's a hard one. So we might we might do an episode on that down the road at some point. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so that's something that we may do. Really, um, we're open to suggestions too. So if anyone wants to suggest stuff, you you can email us at horrornerdsatchurch at gmail dot com. But there's so many good movies out there. We could do this show forever and ever and ever until the eschaton comes but like i would love to cover some of those like saved i think would be great like you suggested emily or jesus camp and kind kind of the ones where christianity is the horror in many ways yeah i think that yeah i would be super down for that if you need any you know guests on the podcast for sure yeah (laughs) definitely 
there are certain movies out there that you, you really can't box in as horror, but sometimes they inadvertently become that. Mm. And one example I was thinking of is during a recent trip down 1990s memory lane, I watched the 1991 movie Sleeping with the Enemy starring Julia Roberts. And for the bulk of that movie, it's pretty much a domestic violence drama where Julia Roberts' character is trying to survive this horrible marriage. And then at the end, it becomes sort of a slasher movie. So, you know, I understand that they want to amp up the drama by having the clearly abusive husband uh, reach an unforgivable level. But the way the movie is filmed, it just became this different beast. Mm. You know, at the commentary it was trying to make suddenly got sucked into Haddonfield, Illinois, <laughs> where Michael Myers is from. Mm. I haven't seen that one. Our first reading for the third Sunday of Easter is from Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Having healed a man who couldn't walk, Peter proclaims forgiveness through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's promises. So one of the themes in this passage that I noticed was very, very biased retelling of what is yeah. going on, which we talk <laughs> about a lot and is really evident in this passage. It reminded me, so Peter is very accusatory of the Israelites, uh -huh. of whom he is one, right? Like, Peter is an Israelite. Uh -huh. He's talking to his own community. He's been hurt by them. He's upset, so he's going after them. But it reminded me, especially in the context of what has become Christianity with a lot of power for, especially yeah. over and against Judaism and Jewish people um, and the ways that anti-Semitism works. So it reminded me a lot of actually in the Hunger Games, the way that the capital tells the history of the revolution of the rebellious districts and all of the districts have to learn that history the capital's history mm. that centers the capital and makes the capital out to be the good people and the districts out to be the bad ones and so your periodic reminder there's plenty of anti-semitism in the bible and yeah. uh -huh. peter is yeah is engaging in it in ways that are not helpful for Christianity and not helpful for Judaism. Yeah, I could speak as a Luther scholar to that briefly, too, in that, of course, Luther was very anti-Semitic as well throughout his whole life, and especially in his reading of the Hebrew scriptures. But beyond that, one of the things I think a lot of people forget in Luther's rhetoric is against the Catholic Church is he considered himself Catholic through most of the early Reformation. And so sure. when he was spe speaking very vocally against the Pope or something like that, he was doing it as a Catholic and speaking, a kind of trying to be prophetic with his, in his own community. And so it's very different than when you have now a lot of like anti-Catholic sentiment in a lot of mainline Protestant denominations. It's very different than it used to be uh, when it's kind of pulling from that. And we forget the context, similar to how Pete, we forget the context that Peter is speaking to his own community from a place of marginalization by his community. Yeah. Sure. Context matters. Uh, so as a Roman Catholic, a lot of criticism of our tradition from non-Catholics has been this kind of distance that we keep, we keep from the scriptures. Mm -hmm. You know, the churches don't even have Bibles in the pews. And um, that's because of this long tradition 
this long theological education tradition and the early alignment with um, a lot of the early early philosophers. And uh, it's also in our uh, officially promulgated texts, by which I mean the encyclicals, which I know um, most of the public knows about nowadays, but also other documents like letters um, that the Pope composes. And those are all considered canon of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that distance is concerning for many uh, Christian non-Catholic believers, uh, because how do we know how much of the of Jesus' story, of the Christian story, is being uh, appropriately told from Scripture versus the study of Scripture? And uh, that's where a lot of uh, controversy about that comes from. This this reading is really interesting because I love what y'all have said about Peter so far. And I wonder, I wonder if a lot of marginalized groups <clears throat> might be prone to this in their growth and as they move towards the center, away from the margins. And I wonder if this is something that could be avoided because being a marginalized person and critiquing the marginalized group you're part of is something I have experienced in my lived experience. And, and Pace has heard me talk about this a lot. I have chewed their ear <laughs> off. As a gay male, the, the gay male and a, a lot of times the cis white gay male community is so problematic. <laughs> it is so problematic and I feel like half of my life as a queer person that could be spent you know helping baby queers or 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 dancing uh, in the before times <laughs> has been has been devoted to telling cis white gay men no yeah don't do that stop that and so I I I empathize with Peter here from my social location as a gay male. And my frustration has grown to a point where, and again, Pace knows about this, I'm moving away from identifying as a gay male and moving towards queer mm -hmm. because that expansiveness for me has been such a relief. I have met so many queer folks by which I define as beyond gay cisgendered males who are not problematic, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Or at least not in the same kind of homonormative ways. I, yeah. I think we all, of course, have our own sure. issues, especially uh, me as a white person with white supremacy and stuff that we need to work on. But, there, but I definitely understand and, sit and see what you're saying, too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, there's different ways that we are problematic, and some of them are ways that we are like willing and ready to recognize and change and turn um we talk about on the podcast at a variety of points like repenting the turning around we talked about reparations um in both our good friday and palm passion sunday episodes yeah in verse 12 we see that peter says why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk well it certainly wasn't something you did through a thorough understanding of medical science now was it peter <laughs> 
this kind of sounds like something that the doctors on Star Trek could most likely have taken care of, mm. at least if we're talking <laughs> about like the next generation or after. Uh, although there were occasionally people with similar mobility issues uh, after that. Mm. Also, somewhat unrelated, but due to a recent conversation, I would like to throw in there that in Star Trek, a tricorder is used in the diagnosis process. It collects data on how a person's body is working. It is not something you use as a part of the treatment process. Mm. But mm-hmm. uh, when I read about the healing miracles, uh, one of the common connections that I make with pop culture is actually Star Trek because the the ways that they heal people on that show are practically miraculous uh, compared to what we've been I will yeah I love we'll never forget this scene in um, Star Trek for the voyage home when DeForest Kelly goes to into a hospital set in contemporary times and oh, sees yes. a woman <laughs> on dialysis and is like, what is this, the dark ages? And he gives her a pill uh-huh. that helps regrow her kidneys. I just love that scene um, yes. so much. Yes, yes. Uh, but also, one, one thing I want to say about Star Trek too is I just love how it, it's not perfect as no pop culture really is, but I do love that even... Um, in most iterations of Star Trek, there the way they still see disability in the future as being a vibrant part of the Starship's community, like Jordy mm-hmm. LaForge still has his visor, so it's a device that allows him to see. But nonetheless, he could put he could get eyes that would just fix his disability and to use a really problematic term. But no, instead he chooses to have mm-hmm. a visor that still that enhances his ability in many ways and in star trek discovery that uh in many background scenes there is a one of the crew people is in a wheelchair and uh mm-hmm. we don't really know many much about that crew person but just that their vision of the future sees uh they take care to include a future that includes the disabled community in ways that most science fiction i think does not mm-hmm. uh or tries to minimize disability or think that disability is something that can be cured as opposed to being a part of the fabric of uh, the human condition in a way that is neither good nor bad, but just part of our diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a gift of Star Trek that is not present in all other movies. As we know from multiple mentions of in our previous iteration of this podcast, that was HP at church and the ways that, the Harry Potter series erases the possibilities for disability. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to point out that our, our listeners can't see it right now, but I am in fact scanning everybody with a tricorder <laughs> and, and, and picking up picking up their life signs. No, I'm just kidding. As we continue in this passage in verse 17, Peter says, And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And I'm not sure if Peter is being facetious or not, right? Like, is it, and now friends, or like, and now friends. But in Battlestar Galactica, which I just finished, except for the, like, prequel story about the Cylons or whatever. So say we all. So say we all. But in Battlestar Galactica, especially with Gaius Baltar, there is this, like, question about ignorance and like if Gaius is really ignorant or to what extent he is ignorant of his complicity once the Cylons attack he knows that he is complicit in it but like how ignorant is he like he knows he shouldn't be doing it but does he know that it's how bad it's gonna be 
And I think that becomes this line that's threaded throughout the series of where is the line for humans in human Cylon engagement? Where do they draw the line of participating in something because you don't know enough to know how bad it is versus participating in something and knowing how bad it is versus not participating? Like, yeah, there's just this whole complicated web. I'm willing to bet that several podcast episodes have been made about that character. Also probably true. (laughs) Yeah. Our second reading for this episode is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Although we don't know what the future will entail, God's love nevertheless makes us children of God. So one of the themes that came up for me in this passage was the idea of like lawlessness and morality and the way that this passage talks about sin and guilt and lawlessness, and it got me thinking about moral development in particular, um, Kohlberg's three or six stages of moral development, which I learned about when I was in psychology class in college Mm. Um, and maybe in high school. I don't know. Once you learn about this, though, you can never like place yourself on it because I know that I I know the tricks and I know the cheats of how to frame things so that it's in the right spot. Um, But the idea of Kohlberg's stages is and the idea is that people for the most part, progress through the stages and maybe never reach the final stage, but maybe do. Um, And we have certain people like Jesus who do reach the final stage, but like the beginning of like moral deliberation and development is obedience. So you're trying to avoid punishment. And then the second one is like trying to achieve or is a self-interested one. And so it's trying to receive benefit. So avoid punishment. And then you step to the next one is what's in it for me? What, what do I get out of it? And then the next one is, like, how do I conform to the social norms? So how do I be a good person? And that has to do with, like, interpersonal engagement with morality. And then authority and following, like, the authority. And that's, like, law and order morality, which is, you know, a particular orientation on D&D and not one that I will probably <laughs> ever have for any of my D&D characters or life. Neutral good is way more fun. I prefer chaotic. Okay, that's um, <laughs> Yeah. And then it moves to the, like, third level, the fifth and sixth stages, which are, like, social contract orientation. So, like, what do we contract to do and to value as a community or as a society? And then the final one is a like universal ethical principles. So this is like, it's the arc of the moral universe, right? It's the thing that is greater than any law that, ha- that are guided, those guiding principles that go beyond the law and that sometimes go against the law. Um, so sometimes what is sinful is lawful and sometimes what is uh, not sinful, what is good is unlawful. That sort of thing. So that, I just like went down this rabbit hole of like remembering my psych classes. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard of that before, but it immediately made me think of the three uses of the law for Luther. Um, and of course, there's some debate whether or not he believed in the third use. I am on the camp that he did. But uh, the first use being the civic use, basically that the law is put in place so that we know how to act in an ordered society. And the second being the theological use that the law makes us realize our failings as humans and drives us to realize our need for God's grace. And then the third use is 
essentially that the law becomes written on our hearts as Christians. And so that we then um, go out to basically enact the law out of the freedom from uh, that great God's grace provides us and, and, and in order to serve others. And the other thing that it makes me think of too, um, going back to the horror theme of our podcast is that so many horror stories kind of get their roots, I think, in the morality tales of the medieval era. And so, especially when you think about like the uh, morality tales where the devil kind of is a supporting character and uh, to try to get people to, or you could even think of like Job as kind of a precursor for this morality tale, the book of Job. And so I think many horror movies kind of do this now, even like the bloody franchise like the saw franchise one of the things that they do is they there's one of the recent ones they basically have take their take on capitalism is they get this insurance agent to come in and have to decide even though he has to make decisions about whether or not he's going to uh, save somebody who's an elderly oh. woman or save somebody who's a young man and his insurance as an insurance agent of course he would save the young man but if he saves a young man, there'll be other consequences and stuff. So this horror movie is, is like getting people to think Mm -hmm. in the audience about like what kind of values are we putting into us things like insurance and into capitalism and the ways we value youth and stuff like that, that are not always healthy and good. Um, And the fact that this comes up in a horror movie, I think is just so funny, especially a franchise that a lot of critics deride as really badly made, especially the later entries. Yeah. It nonetheless has this um, kind of deep philosophical and moral kind of play and tone to it. So Emily, thank you for that psychological perspective. I was not aware of that. I think what's interesting about that is um, in Roman Catholicism, uh, these three different levels are absorbed, I feel like, into a branch of teaching called Catholic social teaching, Mm -hmm. which is a fairly modern phenomenon, actually. The premise of Catholic social teaching is right there in the name, um, and its emphasis is on Catholic and social. So the Catholic aspect refers to our faith, um, and it also refers to universal, so everybody. And the social aspect is how do we engage with each other? And so these questions of self-interest and the social contract um, and interpersonal relations definitely come into play. Uh, but what Catholic social teaching is ultimately driving us to do is to become involved with your neighbor. Mm. And um, sure. it, it's, it seems like the self is not necessarily you know, in second place, for lack of a better description, but you're taking care of the community first, is what uh, Catholic social teaching is encouraging. Because by taking care of the community, by being engaged in that social aspect, it's going to come back to you. And all of that will magnify the glory of god (laughs) i'm probably the corniest christian in this podcast i don't know i literally have socks that say kind of corny and have candy corn on them so (laughs) to be entirely fair you are in iowa it's true so i i feel like that has to i mean it's not even like real corn though it's candy corn (laughs) i feel like that actually makes it cornier exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's meta corny (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I'm dying. Metacorny. We are here to murder you with terrible puns. <laughs> but yes, thank you for your point about Catholic self teaching. In this house, it. we stand Dorothy Day. Absolutely. Word. Mm-hmm. In verse two, we read, when God is revealed, we will be like God, for we will see God as God is. I feel like I say this a lot about the New Testament non-gospel readings that we get, but I feel like this could use more explanation. <laughs> Like, for example, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy from Kansas definitely has the wizard's true nature revealed to her. Sure. That doesn't mean that she becomes more like him. I mean, they are both from Kansas, but that was true before. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is just a God thing that only happens when we're talking about God. That happens sometimes. But I feel like peddling and swindling men trying to pretend to be wizards. Yes, you said peddling, and I immediately was thinking about the uh, the woman in Kansas who turns in Witch of the West on her bicycle, and I had to realize, oh no, you were talking about some yes. of the other kind of peddling, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's it's it's okay for my part. If it's any consolation, I'm commingling the Wizard of Oz book and the movie with Wicked. They're all yeah. blending oh, in for me. <laughs> yes. They all combine a lot for me as well. I haven't read all of the books, but Mm. I, in verse seven, I kept going with the morality stuff. Um, But as we read, little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as God is righteous. So when I was reading verse seven, I was thinking about the Firefly, the show slash Serenity movie has a game Mm. that I really love. That's like a board game. And in it, you oh, cool. can be different oh. characters, and there are so- and you can get crew who are different characters from the mo- from the show. Mm. And if you have like moral characters, there's like a particular thing that if they do, like you have to, you get like jobs to do. And if you're doing a job that's immoral, then it will like it ca- like there's a way to represent the moral injury that it causes. Um, and so they are like righteous. In their doing what is right, and when they do something that is wrong, it causes moral injury, and you're more likely to have the clue, the crew like desert or whatever. But yeah, so I was thinking about that in the like ways that morality is represented again, not through what is legal or illegal, but through what is moral or immoral, particularly for the the crew that are at the heart of the show. Our gospel reading for this episode is from Luke chapter twenty four verses 36b through 48. Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection and does a bit more work to convince the disciples that Jesus is not a ghost and then sends them out to proclaim the good news. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of incarnation or corporality, right? The idea that Jesus is not a ghost and therefore is a physical being with physical needs and it reminded me of the different ways that I've played D&D, that, where there's always this requirement in D&D that the characters have to have X amount of food per day, X amount of water per day, and if they don't sleep every X amount of time for either a short rest or a long rest, this is how it like negatively affects their ability to function. There are some campaigns where we just kind of assume that, like, yeah, we'll have enough food, like, we're not out in the desert, like, wandering with food scarcity, we're like going from town to town. And so we can easily pick up food or find food. And then there are others where it's like, okay, 
what food did you eat? How did you eat it? My first ever D&D campaign, I accidentally killed a bunch of baby animals because I was like, I don't know if we're going to have food, how we're going to get food. Look, animals, I'm going to kill them because, ha, ah. all well, like, the actual me is a vegetarian. So it was, <laughs> that's like a whole other morality question, but... Also, Emily, I have to tell you, it doesn't sound like you accidentally killed those Well, animals. okay. It sounds like you killed them all. I did, but I like... <laughs> like, they're not real. I get it that didn't name, but... quite click for me that they were baby uh, animals. Oh, no. We got in trouble for that. <laughs> like, the druids in the forest and the druidic circle in the forbidden forest were not happy. Yeah. So, someone remind me to never make Love. Emily crabby. <laughs> it's true. I do not do as well when I am hangry. Low blood sugar is a menace. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. So right now, Joe and I are walking through, for Horror Nerds at Church, we're walking through the Halloween series, uh, which features Michael Myers as the uh, main slasher in uh, person in that. And there's so much care in the first movie to really have this ambiguity about mm. who Michael Myers is. Is he a some sort of supernatural figure or is he just a man? Uh, and at the very end of the first film, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, <laughs> but it came like out that. in 1978. Yeah. Right, so it's right. like, <laughs> please have seen it by now. At the end of the first film, Michael Myers gets shot a few times uh, by one of the protagonists and then falls out of a window and the person who shot him his name is loomis he and laurie who's the final girl are talking and then loomis goes out looks out the window and michael mm. myers is gone but you can mm. kind of see the impression where he had landed and so the qu question is like that the film really leaves it ambiguous did he get up and walk away because he's some sort of superhuman or is he like in a bush basically bleeding out and just kind of like crawled away the film deliberately doesn't answer that and then of course due to the long-running nature of slashers he has to the each subsequent movie he becomes more and more superhuman to survive all the things that he survives and keep coming back for the next installment and so so i was kind of thinking that about this passage just like it's just the ambiguity of what this mm -hmm. resurrected Jesus is like clearly needs to eat and drink, but is there some sort of supernatural element to him or is he resurrected in human form? Like as just a human body is still of course fully divine, but like, is he still in the same, does, does he still suffer the same human weaknesses that all of us mm -hmm. suffer? And uh, your point about D and D campaigns, maybe also think of the Oregon trail <laughs> of video yes. game, how, you need to prepare to no. make sure you have enough food to last the entire trip. And inevitably, I wouldn't. So my characters would always end up dying uh, from dysentery or lack of food or Same. something. I don't think I've ever once won that game. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I tried all of my seventh grade year to, uh, to win that game, and it wasn't working for me. <laughs> the, the, the concept of... Um, just just pondering incarnation and corporality with with regard to jesus my my engagement in such a situation would be to welcome jesus as a guest i you know if you're a ghost um if you're flesh i i that's beside the point <laughs> if you want water i will get you water if 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 you need 
food, I'll serve you food. That's that's hospitality. And that's also, uh, Pace had used the word weakness, but it's also recognizing kind of a necessary boundary, like acknowledging that in a certain form, particularly a corporeal form, there's only so much we can do. And um, I'm thinking of Star Trek The Next Generation, right? And that famous uh, season, two-part season finale thing, the one where Captain Picard gets assimilated by the Borg. And so what I love about that is uh, vis-a-vis today's action scenarios for lack of a better term the response in in modern storytelling you know circa 2000 and beyond is to be gung-ho we're gonna go after um you know those those nasty rats right the borg we hate them they're our enemy but in 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 that tng episode it's more reason than that and there's one scene in particular where uh they're planning to try and retrieve Captain Picard, but they also want to disable the Borg, right? Because the Borg have set course for Earth to turn all of us into, you know, robots. But Commander Riker says, we all need a break. I understand the urgency of needing to get our captain back and that, you know, we need to stop the Borg from getting to Earth. But we are, we've already been working for 20 plus hours and so this woman character, uh, Commander Shelby, uh, who is an expert on the Borg and who had joined the team um, specifically to, to be an expert on the Borg, she says, but I want to continue researching this because I am the expert on the Borg and let me work with Commander Data, who is the android character, right? And she says, Commander Data is an android. He doesn't need rest. And then Commander Riker is like, yeah, but you, Commander Shelby, need mm-hmm. rest. And I don't want to be fighting the Borg at the same time a crew is fighting its own fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In verse 36, we read, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. So the implication is that Jesus didn't just walk in through the front door, but appeared like magic. Was he teleported in like Star Trek? Was he under an invisibility spell and decided that that was the moment to surprise the living daylights out of his disciples? <laughs> Did he fling off the invisibility cloak? Very possible. Was he trying to make a hyperspace bypass and he just got lost? We may never know. Did they hear the roaring of a TARDIS shortly <laughs> Is there a blue police box in the corner? Now, right? in that case, I have to say I like to think that the doctor would be Jesus's companion rather than the other Details, one. details. <laughs> They would companion each other. Oh, I'm sure that the doctor would never admit to being a companion. Oh, of course not. Like, we all know that. (laughs) Well, and I was looking at verse 41 in this passage where it says, While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, Jesus said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And it reminded me, as you talked about, Joe, of hospitality, right? The, are you gonna offer me food? I need some food kind of thing. And I feel like the doctor does it at some point, but I can't remember. I, I think I there's a scene when the doctor first meets, the 11th doctor first meets Amy Pond and he comes yes. into her house and asks the fish for food. Custard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he doesn't actually eat a lot. Yeah, but he does eat the cus- fish sticks and custard. Yes. He's got to like try it out. 
The one, the one that like is very clear about this is Dumbledore in the beginning of the Half Blood Prince when he comes to like yes, talk to the Dursleys and be like, "Okay, here's the deal with Harry. This is how you're gonna actually be," and he's like. So let us presume that you have welcomed me into your home. Let us presume that you have offered me drinks. Let us presume and like creates, like brings the drinks into being, brings himself a chair, like sits them down in their own couch and like just imposes hospitality on himself, like for himself into their space. Um, And I love that. And I suppose in doing so proves that he isn't a vampire. That's true. Because vampires have to be invited. That's true. Proves, Dumbledore proves he's not a vampire. He also proves that he is not a ghost because he consumes the beverage. Yeah, and then that, that I guess, goes back to your deep dive question. Jesus clearly can't be a vampire. If he just appears in the room, he would have had to have been invited in. So he's knocked out Well, if it's a home. Like, if it's not really explained whether they're in a home or just, like, a public building or, like, they're definitely Mm. hiding somewhere. That's right. It's not a pandemic. They don't have to, like, just be in the (laughs) Right. I was like, of course they're at home. Where else is they? exist outside of our house. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I think that sounds fake. Speaking of the horror genre. uh, Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Pace and Joe. Any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? Ooh, I, I didn't know y'all were so deep on this podcast. <laughs> it's a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide, which if you haven't tried ah. Douglas Adams of uh, British sci-fi wacky fame, uh, it is a good time. All, all, I, all I know from that is the line about the Earth being mostly harmless. <laughs> yes, <laughs> also true. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> Oh, Pace, any deep thoughts? uh, uh, Definitely check out Horror Nerds at Church. I think that, and I just want to say that, I think I said this earlier, but uh, you don't have to have seen every film. We kind of walk through the film a little bit. So even if you haven't seen it, you can still listen and hopefully get something out of it. And we do that deep dive as well, which we post in the show notes, like what the timestamp is for that. So you can just Mm -hmm. tune in for that if you want. But, or just watch the movies that you like and, and listen to those episodes a la carte. That's fine, too. Uh, beyond that, I will be guesting on Emily's blog, uh, Querying, where I'll be doing some, for the Easter season, I'll be doing some queries for the Gospels there. Mm-hmm. So if you like what I had to say about any of the biblical texts today, you can see some more yes. of that. Yes, uh, I'm excited for Pace to be querying the gospel readings in Easter. I think it'll be great. Also, just a so cool. note for our listeners, when we're talking about horror nerds at church, one note is we tend to be a podcast for every age, or we try to be one that is accessible to folks of different ages, even as we <laughs> tackle like really real and really tough stuff. And I've been talking about horror nerds at church as being like an after hours version of a podcast. <laughs> yes. Just just uh-huh. for our yes, younger we... listeners to be aware of mm. if you're interested in that. Yeah. Which yeah. comes with the nature of horror the, films, I think. A yeah, bit. that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Is like the genre of horror tends to be a little bit more not exclusively so, but tends to kind of be a little bit more rated M for mature or something right. like that. So so our, our podcast does get an explicit rating. We do use some <laughs> uh, swear words. We also talk, uh, due to the nature of horror, there's often talk about human sexuality and violence and stuff like that, which relates to the film. And we do put content notes in the description if it's a particularly sensitive topic that comes up in the film Absolutely. discussion. But 
but yeah, that we are the after hours version of what what I like about being in that after hours space is it it really gives us the freedom to also express ourselves um as queer persons. And so I I am able to contribute, you know, my thoughts on sexuality and how that relates uh to uh whichever topic we're talking about. And you know, uh as many folks suspect, horror movies have strong elements of sexuality in them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's nice to be able to uh, address that. I think I think my parting deep thought mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, would be about community mm-hmm. and just how important it is. And it's just one of my favorite components of Jesus's way, of the way, right? And sure. I I think community is best exemplified by this podcast episode today. Just like, it's so cool that you had me and Pace come on, but it's, it was also like a little community here. Mm. And what I mean in my definition of community in this, in this context is we all see each other. At least I felt very seen by everyone here. And the specific thing that I felt seen by is that it's okay to use pop culture to understand my faith. Like I'm not, I'm not some anomaly, right? I'm not some anomaly who's, who's trying to understand the gospels by looking towards Star Trek Voyager or maybe agent Dana Scully on the X-Files. That's okay (laughs) because I see you all modeling it for, Mm. for, for me. And that's, that's like the great benefit of community that's so much better than like material goods and 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 money and i don't mean to be super corny yet Mm -hmm. again but that's the truth not that i'm you know against having material (laughs) yeah but you know (laughs) sorry i was just having (laughs) not against having my needs met but yeah Speaking oh, of which, yes, if anyone yes. would like to donate to the Patreon of Nerds at Church, but, uh, we'll get to that in just yes, a second. Yes, that's actually, actually, <laughs> I imagine that this episode will be a little bit shorter and have an extended version. And if you are one of our patrons on Patreon, we have various levels of patronage, 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 pa- patronage when it's regular, but on Patreon, is it patronage? It can be it if you want now. to. And at various levels... <laughs> you can actually have access to the full recordings, our full guest episodes. Whenever we have to like cut some stuff, we'll put the full guest episodes as accessible just for patrons. So you can definitely check us out. Patreon.com slash nerds at church. Out of curiosity, does horror nerds at church have a Mm, Patreon? Not yet. We plan to launch one probably ahead of season two. And we will definitely link and make sure everybody knows how to find horror nerds at church in our oh, yes. descriptions and publicity stuff. But we are so excited that you all were here. This was a great episode. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much for having us, and thank you for letting us be the After Hours <laughs> spinoff. That was really I feel fun. edgy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool. I'm hip. And I know that by saying those things, I'm decidedly uncool <laughs> and unhip. Perfect. That's how we like it. Nice and corny. Yes, exactly. Or cheesy for those of us who aren't like That's true. Knowledge. I do love cheese. Mm, dairy. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the fourth Sunday of Easter with our special guest, L. Dowd. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. 
For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes or access to our uncut guest episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerds at church. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. So if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know that via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Phobiscum.